This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR for another cram session. In these special releases, we have aggregated the takeaways and tips from previous episodes. If you'd like a focused refresher on previous topics covered, stay tuned for this cram session. Up next are the takeaways and tips from the episode, The Bloomberg for Private Companies with Anand Sanwal. Okay, really great interview there. Let's recap the key takeaways. Key takeaway number one is called the three G's of decision making. Early on in Anand's career, he noticed the three primary ways big corporations were making decisions. Gut instinct, Google searches, or guys with MBAs. And these methods were being used for big decisions like who should we acquire, what industries should we go after, and what are our competitors up to. And none of the three are scalable, repeatable, or process-driven approaches to decision-making. Clearly, the best investors, like Sequoia, are not shooting from the hip, but rather employing a methodical and repeatable process to finding and analyzing startups. And one of the benefits of a centralized source of high-quality data on private companies is that smart individuals can focus on data insight instead of data acquisition. Anand said, Many of our users are analysts, and we actually get them doing analysis versus just Excel jockeying and trolling around the web looking for data points to drop into a spreadsheet. All right, key takeaway number two is called life events and signals. A cogent point from Anand was that everyone focuses on financing and exits for startups, but those are just two life events. CB Insights is perpetually gathering signals and looking at all the life events of a company. Examples of signals that they measure include customer and partner signings, press, volume of social media activity, sentiment of social media activity, web traffic, mobile app data, and turnover. And even more specifically, an example that he gave is that they monitor if the VP of sales is turning over every quarter. It's clearly a bad sign, but to the untrained eye, that may look like the company is hiring high-level sales talent at aggressive levels. This could be a false positive. On the beneficial side of signals, examples such as hiring a CFO, head of HR, and lots of salespeople serve as positive signals that occur when a company is growing in a healthy and sustainable way. And the third and final takeaway is called the three M's of data. With the CB Insights development of Mosaic, they are fundamentally analyzing data in three areas, momentum, market, and money. On momentum, How fast is the company growing and scaling relative to its counterparts? On market, is the company in a sector or area that's attractive and outpacing that of other segments? Here, Anand cited the flash payment sector, which is a particularly tough area at the moment, 
and can significantly impact the downstream ability to attract more capital, despite very strong core business metrics. And finally, he spoke about money. What's the startup's burn rate? How much runway does it have, and who did it raise from? Clearly, a capital raise from Sequoia is going to provide greater opportunity for a young company than 99% of the other venture firms out there. Okay, let's wrap up with a tip of the week, and this week's tip is called Check the Comps. I regularly speak with investors about potential startup investments, and more often than not, the conversation revolves around customers, competitors, and mass market viability. All fine. But rarely do I ever hear about the comps or comparables. Investors may be asking, are the growth rates for this startup below, at, or above the norm? Are the revenue numbers where they should be? How should they be addressing virality in existing customers as a marketing channel? Or what monetization method will be the killer business model? Those are great questions and ones where there may be some precedent. Here's where comps can be of great value. On a recent episode of Investor Stories, we discussed an investment in a company called Cybrary. When my investment partner, Jeff, and I were reviewing the numbers, we were astonished by the startup's growth. But that didn't tell us if they were better, worse, or the same as similar companies. The growth numbers also didn't tell us where we should price the deal if we decided to invest. Should this be a one, a three, or a $6 million valuation? The answer was in the comps. This was a startup at the seed stage, could be classified as a verticalized social community, also could be considered ed tech. It was in the cybersecurity sector. And finally, it was located in the greater Washington, D.C. area. This allowed us to look at comps for startups with similar characteristics. Those recently raising rounds in greater D.C., startups raising at the seed stage in cybersecurity. We looked at startup growth rates and revenue within EdTech, and of course, growth and monthly active users in vertical networks. This is part of why SaaS investors love to invest in SaaS. It's much easier to compare apples to apples and make an investment decision when you can compare hundreds of different companies with the same business model. In doing this, we not only saw how Cybrary stacked up against others, and we not only determined the appropriate valuation that they should raise at, but we also got some insight into who they might become. Companies like GitHub could provide great insight to their current position and where they might evolve to. No two companies are the same, and we are in a constant state of change where the landscape today looks much different than that of tomorrow. But this should not be an excuse to ignore the past and what those are doing around you. Those investors evaluating companies in a vacuum and those startups building as if they are in one may have trouble ever getting out. Up next are the takeaways and tips from the episode Building an Investor Brand with Jay Acunzo and John Gannon. Special thanks to our sponsors there. Let's recap the key takeaways from the interview. The first is called the Platform VC. This is a relatively new term in the industry that's been ubiquitous as of late. Venture capital firms have acknowledged the need to create a brand for themselves and now have platform initiatives. And most are hiring non-investment professionals, like Jay, to lead these efforts. From my exposure to this trend so far, it seems that platform efforts include one or more of the following. Number one, content. 
creating original content that entrepreneurs want to consume. Number two, events. Hosting events and plugging into the activities around their ecosystems. And finally, number three, community building and services. This could be as simple as coordinating a tech meetup or as involved as creating a connected community amongst an investor's portfolio companies. Many venture firms are creating virtual and in-person methods for their entrepreneurs to interact with one another and also leverage shared services that can help during the early stages. And John cited a couple investors that are doing all of these things, creating original content, hosting large conferences, and creating a community of entrepreneurs. This included investors like Jason Lemkin and Jason Calacanis that are effectively becoming media companies. And in Jason Calacanis's case, he is running a blog, a podcast, a large conference called Launch, an accelerator, and manages one of the larger angel syndicates on AngelList. This isn't to say one needs to build a media company. Some of the strongest brands have a single approach and are very targeted in their efforts. Jay encouraged investors to think about why they exist. What value will they add to the community and to the customer? And as Maya Heyman emphasized in episode 65, the investor's customer is the entrepreneur. Key takeaway number two is called white labeling and repurposing. Jay and John had some great content advice on A, how to check if one's content is original, and B, how to leverage great content for the best reach. On the former, Jay suggested that every content producer ask theirself, if you were to white label this content, could you still tell who the source is? There are many cases where I'm reading an article and it feels like something I've read before with no original voice. A couple topic examples of late that have been beaten to death are the standard, we are founder friendly, or be prudent with your burn rate as an entrepreneur. I feel like I've come across these articles a hundred times. And to Jay's point, if it were to be white labeled, I wouldn't be able to tell who the author is. It's just the same recycled content over and over. So one can test their content by asking if others can tell who's written it if you strip away the attribution. On the latter point, how to leverage great content for the best reach, Jay and John had some great insights. When one has a piece of content that does very well, they shouldn't immediately move on to the next article. Rather, they should do more with what they have. Jay gave the example of converting articles into a deck on SlideShare. There are also other repurposing mediums like Medium, LinkedIn, or even Facebook. The methods are numerous for getting more miles out of great content. And John also mentioned that you can get more use out of successful content by generating new material about how you created it in the first place. A familiar example of this that I recently came across had to do with Gabriel Weinberg's book, Traction. Of course, he has been a guest on the program multiple times, which is an example of him getting more miles out of the content. And he's also created a long medium post about how he conducted the interviews for the book, how he put everything together, and subsequently how he marketed it. This is a great example of what John was talking about. Take a success, repurpose it, and eventually talk about how it was created in the first place. 
Okay, key takeaway number three is called Types of Investor Differentiation. As discussed in this episode and others, there are two clear categories of differentiators, capital-based and non-capital-based. The capital-centric differentiators have to do with an investor's check size, speed to close, and ability to attract other sources of capital. Yes, everybody's money is green, but a $1,000 check that takes four months is quite different than a $100,000 check that can close in a week. And then there are non-capital differentiators. Sometimes this manifests when an investor has been an operator and has a directly attributable experience set. Or maybe an investor has a very narrow investment thesis centered on a business model, sector, or trend and uniquely understands the area better than most. Other times it has to do with network and an investor's ability to connect entrepreneurs to customers, partners, and the media. And of course, as we covered, it can relate to the extent of one's reach and the medium by which an investor reaches others. And from personal experience, relating back to one of the very first tips of the week titled, Don't Be a Jerk, one of the strongest differentiators that I've come across is just being good to work with. There are still a surprising number of angels and VCs that operate with an elitist approach. Of course, to each their own, but I have trouble seeing how this helps. Personally, I prefer to work with people that are smart, helpful, inspiring, and fun to be around. If just being a decent, supportive human being is your biggest differentiator, my opinion is that it will serve you well in investing and in life. Okay, let's wrap up with a tip of the week, and this week's tip is called Finding the White Space. Jay talked about how VCs are fast followers. They more often than not follow what others have done that is working, rather than create something innovative of their own. It's a bit counterintuitive that they are in the innovation space, and yet they often employ a me-too strategy. People may want to blog like Fred Wilson, Mark Suster, or Bradfeld, but those guys already exist. In today's interview, we talked about building a brand in an original way, not competing within existing mediums or methods, but in entirely new ways, identifying the white space, so to speak. I referenced how when I started recording interviews for my podcast, there were no startup investing focused podcasts. That soon changed when A16Z launched their program, but fortunately, it was a completely different format and approach. Just like with the entrepreneurs we invest in, we want them to be creating new markets or fundamentally disrupting the constructs of existing markets. If you are familiar with the book, Blue Ocean Strategy, the authors discuss what they call red oceans and blue oceans. Red oceans are established markets with many competitors fighting and clawing for every bit of market share, while blue oceans are the white space, completely untouched and unknown to large companies. It's in these areas that one can get fast traction, deliver and extract strong value, and be more customer-focused instead of competition-focused. When one finds these blue ocean opportunities and launches something that cannot easily be copied, the opportunities can be significant and defensible. And as Jay mentioned, the first mover and innovator in these markets is often one step ahead of the competition. Copycat entrepreneurs or investors that aren't doing anything original, will always be following the innovators. A great quote from Jerry Garcia that Jay cited is as follows. 
Don't try to be the best of the best. Try to be the only one that does what you do. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend. And all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Up next are the takeaways and tips from the interview Blockchain Investing with William Mugayar. Tons of great information in that interview. Let's recap the key takeaways. The first is called destruction versus construction. William described how it's a tendency for big business to use the blockchain, or any new technology for that matter, to strengthen what they already have. Most large power and profit centers are incented to raise entry barriers, consolidate, and make things more difficult for competition. Everything ties back to their existing business model, which limits the scope of things that they can do. As an innovator, one should be wary of this. While partnering with a big bank can provide a lot of opportunity, William talked about how this can be restrictive and put the startup in a box. Those elements that help the entity optimize their existing business will be welcomed, while everything else will be killed. Clearly, innovation is not a zero-sum game, but there are winners and losers. Value construction, for one, may mean value destruction for another. But at the end of the day, those being served, i.e. the customer, should always be receiving more value. Key takeaway number two is called intermediaries and sharing economies. William made the point in today's interview that the blockchain is a force for decentralization, and it enables peer-to-peer transactions in a way that disrupts existing intermediaries. He provided the example of the internet and how it created a whole new class of intermediaries, such as e-commerce players like Amazon and eBay, that were replacing old brick-and-mortar e-commerce giants. Similarly, because the blockchain enables consumers to transact directly in a trustworthy, secure, and efficient manner, intermediaries may not only be disrupted, but in some cases may be removed altogether. And finally, key takeaway number three is not a one-trick pony. 
Some people see the blockchain as a one-trick pony with a single application. And while certain applications may become killer apps, it enables much more. The blockchain is a value exchange network. Blockchain enables Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is just one application. A major reason why it works well for cryptocurrency is that it solved the double spend problem. An asset can now be transacted from one person to another, like existing fiat currency. Whereas in the past, technologies would keep a copy of the asset at both ends of the exchange. Here, William cited the example of pictures that people share. With existing digital technologies, both users have a copy of the asset once it is shared. With the blockchain, assets can be sent from one party to another where the sender no longer retains a copy. William cited four major areas enabled by the blockchain, of which this belongs to the first category, an exchange of digital assets. With regards to this category, for many existing asset exchanges, there is currently a transaction delay for settlement and clearing. The blockchain can speed up the transfer of assets and also solves the double spend problem. Another category that we covered was verification of assets. This can be used as a way to timestamp a particular asset. That timestamp cannot be changed once it's stamped. It can only be verified. The next category William covered was smart contracts. This refers to business logic and terms. If two parties agree on terms, like a wager on a sporting event, it could be created in a smart contract on the blockchain that will execute the asset transaction upon the result of the future event. Essentially, you could have a bunch of if this, then that rules with execution of the desired outcome. And the final category that we touched on centered on authentication. Related to smart contracts, William talked about authentication and multi-signature. With the blockchain, one can have a third party that must authenticate transacted assets between two other parties, almost like an escrow service, but instead of holding the asset as a third party, they can handle authentication of the transfer. Okay, with that, let's wrap up with our tip of the week, and this week's tip is called external drivers. When I worked at my previous employer doing M&A, we were chartered with building a strategy for targeting companies within specific sectors or verticals. But before we could target specific companies, we had to think about the sub-segments of that market in which we wanted to play and build a portfolio of companies around. And the exercise always began with what we called external drivers. What are the market, legislative, and or technology drivers that are going to cause major changes to the industry going forward? We then assess all of those drivers, try and discern the implications of those drivers, and finally, what opportunities would exist for us to exploit. In today's tip, I want to focus on drivers. So let's explore examples of market, legislative, and technology drivers. And we'll use the healthcare sector to help illustrate how these work. We've been working on a deal in healthcare, so it's pretty fresh in my mind at the moment. Regarding market drivers, one major market driver is the average cost of healthcare in a person's lifetime, which is rising at an extremely fast rate. The reality of new treatment methods and medicine is that they come with a heavy price tag. What compounds this driver is that these innovations in healthcare also allow humans to live longer lives. So not only is the cost of treatment received in the average lifetime increasing, but the average lifetime itself is increasing. This all results in total cost of care in a person's lifetime 
that is many multiples higher now than it was a generation ago. And another market driver that I'd like to mention here that's further exacerbating healthcare costs is population. An exploding global population, while increasing the tax base in their respective countries, is also increasing the healthcare cost burden. We can see the effects of these drivers in the immediate future with the aging demographic of baby boomers. They will live longer, have higher cost of care, and come in large numbers. Moving on to the legislative drivers, the most commonly cited healthcare driver that came out of legislation is the Affordable Care Act. This single piece of legislation is highly disruptive to existing healthcare organizations, health service models, and also the total population that has access to healthcare. Another example of a legislative driver in healthcare is related to value based care. If you're not familiar with this concept, it's centered on aligning healthcare organizations' incentives with the desired outcomes. So, the current model in healthcare is fee for service. The more service a health entity performs and the longer they keep patients in the hospital, the more money they make. This is counterintuitive, of course, because it means that healthcare organizations do better if the patients remain sick. The value-based focus attempts to reward health organizations for keeping their patients healthy. So the focus is less on providing more service for financial gain and instead providing financial gain for achieving patient health outcomes. The legislative driver here is that the Department of Health and Human Services has mandated a switch to value-based care with a target of 50% of all healthcare organizations on this model by 2018. Clearly, this is another disruptive driver, destroying value for some and creating enormous value for others. And finally, we have technology drivers. There are far too many to cite here, so I'll just mention a couple. Uh, clearly, the internet and the emergence of mobile have allowed online collaboration and communities of medical professionals to interact and consult with one another on specific cases. We mentioned Fred Wilson in today's discussion, and of course, Union Square has a number of investments in digital health, of which Figure One is a great example of one that would not have existed, certainly without the internet, and also likely not without the advent of mobile and smart devices. Of course, video streaming and advanced robotics have allowed the ability for world-class surgeons in one geography to conduct procedures on patients in completely different locations. Advances in technology can be an extremely powerful driver that enables businesses and possibilities that previously could only be imagined. I'm going to reveal my geek side here a bit, but one of my favorite things to cite is the Star Trek tricorder. In a way, we all have a tricorder in our pockets today in the form of a smartphone. Yet, if I had told my dad just two decades ago that the majority of people in the United States would be walking around with a tricorder by 2015, he would have been calling the people in the white coats. Again, not healthcare related, but could you imagine Uber existing without the proliferation of smart devices? Absolutely not. The technological innovations around smart sensors, GPS, point of service, have now allowed one of the most valuable companies in the world to exist, where previously we couldn't even imagine how that could be possible. Today's discussion was a great example of a major technology driver, and there were market drivers discussed, and potentially even legislative drivers, that will also motivate innovators to build applications utilizing the blockchain. 
The emergence of the blockchain will enable many companies, business models, and companion technologies to generate significant value in ways that did not previously exist. Do we know what those are yet? Not really. But it all starts with external drivers. As William explained, one must know what it is and how it works before they can imagine how it can be wielded. So whether you're investing in the blockchain or another sector, what's changed? What are the drivers? What are the strategic implications of those drivers? And finally, what opportunities exist because of those implications? If you're a thesis investor and want to have focus, start with the drivers. All right, that will wrap things up for this week. Huge thanks to William again for coming on the program and sharing his insight. Until next time, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining me. That will conclude this cram session installment. Jump on the TFR website at fullratchet.net today to sign up for the newsletter and receive all the info on special content, episodes, and the best articles written on startups every week. Until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. We'll see you next time. Thank you.